welcome back to Trafe Podcast, your bi-monthly dose of debatably Jewish material. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so we're back from Boston. It was uh, We had a great time having uh, some really, really terrific conversations with people at Tufts and Smith College. Thanks to everyone who was involved in organizing and bringing us out there. Y'all are amazing. Yeah, it, we're doing uh, two workshops on anti-Semitism, talking about the current dominant framework for understanding anti-Semitism in North America, how it emerges from the Jewish right, and talking about different ways that we can uh, we can think about these issues. And David, one of the best things about Massachusetts is that the subway system in Boston has the same logo as Trafe Podcast. Yeah, what are the odds? It was quite surprising. Well, well, in the future, if we're ever hard up for money, we can always take them to court. I mean, I think they definitely precede us, but it looks very similar. And it's pretty amazing to go around town seeing the Trafe logo everywhere. Yeah, it was it was really nice. And we're doing another workshop uh, on November 9th in uh, New York City. It's going to be at Columbia University. In New York City. And uh, if you're interested in <laughs> coming to the workshop, you can just go to the Trafe Podcast Facebook page and, and you can see a link to the event there. That is correct. So, David, I wanted to add something about our Boston voyage. Okay. The Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts is pretty fucking amazing. Oh, yeah, it was great. I mean, let me just paint a picture for you, even though you were there. But let me paint a picture for people who haven't been there. Rural western Massachusetts, small college town. Pull up in the car. There's a nice wooden structure. It's the Yiddish Book Center. And at the bottom of this Yiddish Book Center, and maybe I'm not getting my facts right, but such is life, there are 1.5 million Yiddish books in a vault that is waterproof and fireproof. Uh, we were both able to pick up pretty interesting books that were written in Yiddish. By uh, Karl Marx and Peter Kropotkin. There was the old printer from the foreword there. So cool. Yeah, thank you to Shira for driving us there. Many thanks to Shira for a bunch of things. But yeah, so Yiddish Book Center, if you're ever in Amherst or in the neighboring larger cities, aka Hartford and Boston, shout out to the Whalers, uh, you should definitely check it out. Um, but Sam, unfortunately, we are recording this on a very bad day for Quebec. That is true. The The Liberal Party, which is the neoliberal center-right party in Quebec, passed a bill that prevents people from covering their faces while accessing public services. Yeah, which includes the bus and, and goes pretty far. It was, it was just passed yesterday. It principally targets Muslim and Arab women. We have a lot to say about this. And so next week, we're actually going to have a full episode on this. We'll talk a bit more. We'll be able to talk a bit about also our feelings about the institutional Jewish community's uh, role in all of this. So stay tuned. And speaking about our desire to criticize the institutional Jewish community, this week on the show, we have someone who spends a lot of time doing that. That was a very good seg, David. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, we talked with Ellie Valley, who is a comic artist and writer who had a short stint at the Jewish Daily Forward as the artist in resident. He's the author of a book called Diaspora Boy, Comics on Crisis in America and Israel. And if you're on the Jewish internet, you've probably come across his work. Yeah, Alan Dershowitz described his work as disgusting, and Abe Foxman called it bigoted and unfunny. So uh, we had to have him on. Abe Foxman, the arbiter of humor. Yeah, if, it, if it's not clear, much of Ellie's work focuses on criticizing the leadership of the institutional Jewish community in the United States. And Abraham Foxman was and is one of them. Yeah, former leader of the Anti-Defamation League. So it was only a matter of time before we had him on, and uh, we were able to chat with him over the phone this week. It's Gadal, it's Gadash. It's Gadal, it's Gadash. It's Gadal, it's Gadash. 
Bitkadaş. Hi, I'm Ellie Valley. I am an artist, uh, draw comics, satirical comics mostly. My new book is Diaspora Boy, Comics on Crisis in America and Israel. So Ellie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And I mean, part of the reason that we asked you on the show is because sort of the, the focus of a lot of your work and your comics is pretty similar to our focus on the show, uh, which is criticizing yes. institutional Jewish leaders and, and organizations. And yes. uh, to kind of just start off the conversation, I was wondering how much you actually read Jewish community media. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, not, not as much anymore. It's funny, uh, my arts editor at The Forward, when I was doing stuff for them, when I would point out something, and my comics sometimes can get a little bit uh, esoteric, he'd be like, I, I don't know what this is referring to. And I would send him articles from his own newspaper, and then he would joke, <laughs> oh, I don't read the Jewish media. So, uh, and, but then, you know, since I don't do stuff for The Forward anymore, I, uh, I mean, I will read stuff by Josh Nathan Cases, for instance, but uh, I, I certainly don't read their editorial. I, I mean, I, I read it to the extent that it drives my uh, fury. That uh, sounds about right. When we started doing yeah. the project, it was trying to read every single Jewish media all the time. And after two years, it just takes such a toll on you that I've taken a pretty big hiatus. I don't know about you, David. Oh, yeah, I've had to take yeah. a big step back. <laughs> but uh, we, sh we should tell listeners that you were actually the artist in residence at The Forward between 2011 and ending roughly around 2013. Is that right? Yeah, I need to check the dates. Initially, it was a year, but then it was stretching beyond because the comics take a long time. And you got into a little bit of a tussle with Abe Foxman, former leader of the Anti-Defamation League? Yeah, I mean, tussle makes it sound like a single event. I think it was constant throughout. There was tension and pushback and pressures and all that concerning my depiction of uh, Jewish leaders and Jewish organizations. But it sort of exploded on Halloween, kind of an anniversary now, uh, in 2013. I drew him as an anti-Semite, basically because he made this remark after a few report came out saying that there was high disapproval among American Jews of the Israeli government and Israel's West Bank settlements. Abe Foxman's like, um, you see, I have in my book the exact quote, you know who the Jewish establishment represents? Those who care. This is a poll of everybody. Some care, some don't care. It, it reveals so much about the American Jewish community's leadership's attitudes towards the people they're supposed to be representing, their supposed constituents. And so, to me, it was a great opportunity to sort of flip the script in terms of self-hatred and anti-Semitism. So I depicted him as an anti-Semite because he was treating us as if we are immaterial. And that caused a huge pushback, uproar, etc. And it basically ended my tenure with the forward. I was able to get a um, smattering of further cartoons published over the course of the next, I don't know, year or so. But it was only through a lot of goodwill on the part of basically everyone at the forward except the editor-in-chief and also the publisher who were uncomfortable, to say the least, with the ADL or Abe Foxman's campaign. The forward plays a kind of unique role being the principal North American Jewish publication. At points you can read articles that align more with the worldview of people on the left and at other points they publish disastrous pieces. Um, how do you feel like this publication has changed in the last 10 or 15 years? That's Difficult question because I think I don't I don't know if it's like a single homogenous kind of change that we can point out. They will always publish both the left and the right from the guise of you know both sides kind of thing. You know, in terms of my own comics and politics, 
I think it was partly, you know, just the fact that my politics went up against American institutional leadership's agenda. So it wasn't the politics themselves so much as questioning communal leadership, which the forward did not want to be upsetting beyond their articles. You know, you have to give the forward credit for articles and analyses of things like, you know, numbers of women who are leading Jewish organizations, etc. But in terms of abrasive, hard-hitting satire, that's separate from journalism, and it wasn't something that the editor-in-chief was comfortable with. Mm. I mean, it, it, was, it was always a sort of battle to get things into print. Um, by the end, it, it was a losing battle, essentially. So, so changing gears a little bit, after you released the book and all the, the press you were doing about it, in, in one of the interviews, you said you felt like you were continuing these uh, early 20th century conversations that were happening in, in Prague. Yeah, you said you, were, you felt like you were having conversations with ghosts. And can, can you just expand a bit on what, what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I lived in Prague for five years or so, and I ended up writing a Jewish travel guide resource, you know, popular history book, not like academic scholarship, to Prague, Warsaw, Krakow, and Budapest. And when I was there you know, researching it and, you know, getting a feel for the communities, I, I really became entranced in the libraries with these old journals from the early 20th century, and especially the interwar period. And in some cases, you know, they were Zionist journals, but it was before the state was established and it was much more theoretical and not about actual land. Um, but they were, they were going into these questions of, you know, Jews' emancipation, fitting in society and maintaining um, cultural autonomy, etc. And unfortunately, that vibrant Jewish press, to use that term again, doesn't seem to exist as much today for a number of reasons. But for a time, I, I was intending to go to graduate school in, uh, in that particular period in, in Jewish history of Central Europe. I decided against it partly because of other stuff that was happening. But I do consider my comics to be hopefully a continuation of that kind of discourse and a communication with the people who were, who were writing at that time. You know, I like to think that uh, there's a, not a clear line between the two, because obviously I'm, I'm probably more influenced by mad comics of the 1950s than obscure Jewish journals from 1920s Prague. But, um, but hopefully there's some kind of line. So yeah, I was curious about, like, I, I know you've talked about being inspired by Will Elder and Harvey Kurtzman era Mad Magazine, and yeah. lawsuits sort of seem to be a big part of what it meant to do satire during that era. Has that been a part of your experience in taking on the leadership of the institutional Jewish community? No, thankfully there hasn't been any lawsuit. I mean, I'm sure from the forward's perspective, there were threats of lawsuits. I was kept sort of uh, somewhat ignorant of that stuff. They shared some of it with me, but I mean, many of my comics had to go through their lawyers. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we're overly cautious. They wouldn't permit me to use names that were even similar to the actual people that I was pillorying. But I identified them in the book and or reverted to earlier versions pre-bodlerization. I also want to talk a bit about the part of your life that brought you to working on comics. I was reading an interview where you mentioned there was a time in your life where you had to go to Jewish day school. Oh, yeah. And, and so during that time, your, your dad was working as a conservative rabbi, right? Yep. And my parents were divorced. And so I lived with my mom, who was more secular. And uh, so my father was like legislating the uh, religious adherence from afar, which caused some tensions. Yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit? I know that people who listen to the show probably have some tension with relatives, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles. Like, How has the criticism of religion that's, that's present in your work how has that been received or, and how has that relationship changed over time, I guess? You know, my, my dad is, um, he's proud of the fact that I draw, that I, <laughs> I guess, part of the discourse. Uh, 
but we don't really talk about the, the details because we years ago we stopped uh, discussing this stuff because it only brought acrimony, and um, I don't want to court unnecessary argument when neither of us is going to change, you know. But we have a good relationship, uh, he says defensively. Um, <laughs> but I just don't. I don't want to introduce acrimony where it's not necessary, basically, you know. Yeah, um, sure. And you know, it's like I'm not. I'm not doing these comics to send coded messages to my father. <laughs> he says again defensively. No, because if I was, I'd be leaving him. You know, at his doorstep, I'd be like, oh, "Do you happen to see that?" No, I don't do that. I'm not baiting him. You know, hopefully separate from that. And is it true that your dad had some connection to Sherry Lewis, who played Lamb Chop? Yeah, but I don't remember the. Uh, I don't remember the entire details. But he he was like a sort of amateur magician uh, when he grew up in New York, and he might have apprenticed for her father <laughs> at some time, but I don't remember the full details, although he's told the story so many times that it's remarkable. I don't remember it. Do you guys know Shari Lewis? Because I, I always thought that was sort of an arcane little detail that people don't really, can't, you know, Lamb Chops. They Wait, don't really like know Lamb that Chops, the TV show? It's huge. Is it huge in Canada? Well, not, like, I mean, it was huge here at one point, but not now. I mean, I was born in 88, so it was, it was big in my youth. Uh, when I brought it up, it's like, you know, people who like really know their cultural history know it, but others are like, what are you talking about? Huh. Oh, that's so interesting. All right. Well, we're going to be in New York shortly, so we will ask everyone oh. we meet if they know what Lamb Chops yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Let me know when you're here. <laughs> I know that you probably get this question a lot, so I apologize in advance, but how do you situate your work in terms of political organizing? Like, how do you think about different pieces you do? in relationship to shifting the discourse, shifting action? Like, like, where do you see your work in relationship to political organizing? Yeah, uh, I just want to say, I, didn't, I don't actually get that question much. Um, huh. I got it at the book launch and a little bit since then, on another interview I did, but it's, it's not like a common question. And it's you know, something that I should give more thought to because my response so far has been inadvertently flippant because I think one of the ways the question was, was asked at the launch, I think, you know, more than once was, you know, how can you try to convince the other side, you know, and the whole question of discourse, etc. And I said to them, I am not trying to convince the other side. I, I don't know if it was ever a goal of mine, but it's certainly not a goal now. I'm trying, you know, by pointing out the hypocrisy and the, the lurid corruption and venality in, in many respects of the other side, so to speak, I am trying to portray them as the buffoons that they are and the corrupt politicians or leaders, etc. that they are, and to give nourishment to our side, which has been pummeled for decades now, you know, take the specific topic of Jewish authenticity. We have been told that we are not authentic because we're either intermarried or because we have lefty tendencies, which is historically Jewish. Um, we've been told that we're inauthentic because of our views on Jewish nationalism. And I'm saying, fuck that, you know, we, we are authentic and it's time to stop this weaponization of Jewish authenticity. So, Ellie, before we let you go, I just wanted to to ask a bit about because a lot a lot of your work is is takes the form of satire, and especially right yeah. now, there's I think this a feeling that I share where it's hard for satire to keep up. Yes, there's sort of like what's often referred to as the the Daily Show syndrome, uh, where people can engage with satirical work in sort of in place of political action. As, as someone who does satire and is, and is steep simultaneously in political opposition to the, the things you're seeing happening, like what is your take on this right now? Like, how do you feel about engaging in satire at this moment? Um, it's kind of like intertwined with the earlier question about um, trying to convince the other side or, you know, political organizing and, and satire, because that's the other thing about satire, though, you're not trying to convince the other side. I don't think so. I mean, there might be 
form of satire in which you are. But um, I think the most potent form of satire is like bare knuckled abrasion. <laughs> and uh, you're not going to convince anyone about that, but hopefully you'll give, again, nourishment, etc., and galvanize your side. I mean, yes, the argument that satire is dead is, is accurate because current events continuously eclipse satire. You know, you try and think of something that's just like, like, for instance, like the comic I did uh, over a year ago on Donald Trump's penis. Six weeks after the comic came out, he started bragging about his penis. And so it's like, you, I, I actually did that comic thinking that it would, you know, that I was crossing the final barrier, the unspoken barrier, the subtext to all of his braggadocio. And it's like, you know, I have a big dick, that kind of thing. And, uh, but then he did it. And so I couldn't, I couldn't, right. I went beyond reality only for six weeks and then, and then he eclipsed it. So it is difficult, but, but I still think it has an extremely vital place in terms of keeping our sanity, you know, because we're living in insane times. Well, that's, that's definitely the, the first time that Trumpito's penis has been mentioned on Trafe podcast. We, we have a segment on the show called Shkoyach, where we kind of give people a shout out or groups or an event that's happening for like work that we think is important. But I feel like you might be more inclined to give someone an anti-Shkoyach, so the opposite of that. Is there anyone that you would like to give an anti-Shkoyach to today? I, oh, I want to say this. For the past 10 years, every single diaspora Jewish organization that allowed Netanyahu to speak and that normalized Netanyahu helped pave the way for Trump. Because Netanyahu and Trump share more than they don't share. The bigotry, the demagoguery, the attacks on minorities, the attacks on marginalized groups, the attacks on the press, the attacks on the very institutions of democracy. Basically, it's on us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so anti-Shkoyach to all Zionist Jewish organizations in America? <laughs> Basically, yeah. I mean, and yeah, and also the anti-Trumpers who were celebrating and normalizing Netanyahu over the course of the past 10 years, they can say that they're anti-Trump, that they're never Trump, but they are part of the reason that we have Trump. Every single Jewish organization, not just Netanyahu, but like Naftali Bennett, anyone that is in the current Israeli cabinet who has been allowed into any Jewish organization here, that, that is a Shonda. And it's a Shonda that we're going to be dealing with for generations. Well, I think that's actually an appropriate note for us to end one of our interviews. Uh, thank you so much for talking with us, Elliot, and I wish you best of luck with the book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So that was our interview with Ellie Valley. Again, if you're interested in our workshop about anti-Semitism that we're doing in New York on November 9th, you can find information about it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash podcast. And if you're interested in that workshop and you do not live in New York City, get in touch. We try to plan workshops throughout the year, usually close to the weekends. Let us know, trafepodcast at gmail.com. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Yanagahaga territory. Thanks, as always, to Claire Hertig, our Minister of Design, to Kira Page, our social media consultant, to Cadence O'Neill, who designed TrafePodcast.com, to Sax Syndrome and So-Called for the music you heard in the episode, and Ariana Katz, the Trafe staff rabbi. You can follow us on some social media accounts at Treyf, T-R-E-Y-F, principally Facebook and Twitter. You can send nice messages, not nice messages, general inquiries to trafepodcast at gmail.com. And if you have anything that you want to share with Treyf listeners, uh, please send us a voice memo. You can send it to trafepodcast at gmail.com as well and record it on any device. Just start with your name, where you're calling from, and try to keep it to about a minute or two. See you soon. Oh,
class uh her grandparents i don't know if they at that time owned the sixers or if they had previously owned the sixers but at her bat mitzvah party they had rented a bunch of video games in their home i think in the basement and i played hubert against dr j and he won of course um but that's a nice little claim to fame from childhood wait important question who is dr j i don't think david knows who the sixers are to be honest with you (laughs) 